Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Slam podcast. And I'm sure my dulcet tones will be unfamiliar to you. My name's Steve Carroll. I have um, moonlighted over from the from the Clubhouse podcast because our tour editor, Matt Chivers, is on holiday. But if I am unfamiliar to you, then my co-host you should be fully aware of. And it's um, Matt Coles, as always. Hey, Dean, Steve. Uh, pleasure to have you with us uh, for the first time uh, in in a while. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, Matt, as you say, is on holiday, but uh, we know exactly what's going on, and uh, we can take take everyone through the main stories of the week. I feel like the uninvited guest at someone else's party. I've just like <laughs> I've just gate crashed with a party seven, and now I'm about to wreak havoc on the ensuing fifty minutes or so. Well, as, as long as you don't come in and you know change the playlist and, and rob the beers out of the fridge, I'm sure we'll be we'll get along just fine. I don't think I'll rob the beers. I think I'll hide them all over the garden, <laughs> so, so, so no one else can have them. Funnily enough, funnily enough, uh, that is exactly what happened at my 18th birthday party. All the beers disappeared and were hidden throughout the garden, which is why I can bring you a true choice anecdote. Brilliant! A little Easter egg hunt. An Easter egg hung after half a half a dozen beers is not what everybody wants. But <laughs> moving swiftly on, moving swiftly on, uh, we have got an awful lot to talk about this week. Um, obviously, uh, some amazing scenes on the PGA Tour with Lucas Glover get crashing the FedEx Cup playoffs by winning the Wyndham Championship. Celine Boutier, another win for Celine. She just can't stop winning at the moment after winning in Scotland. Um, we're going to have an AIG Women's Open preview because it's the final major of the year this week. And we'll obviously talk about the first of those FedEx Cup playoffs with the FedEx St. Jude Championship. But we are going to start um, with an incredible tale of scoring. Um, Bryson DeChambeau hitting an amazing 58, really, at Live Golf Greenbrier. Um, it, it, it got the predictable response from some areas. Um, we're going to try and avoid the Live Golf guff, if that's, if that's the right alliteration, I, I, and just concentrate really on the performance itself. I mean, I don't, I don't care where you play your golf. 58 is a serious score. 13 birdies. What a remarkable performance from Bryson. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, 58 being such a score. I mean, I think it was, the, you know, just the seventh in, you know, men's professional golf. Um, obviously, everyone remembers Jim Furyk's at the Travellers, um, I think in 2016. But yeah, what a performance it was from Bryson. Started so quickly, you know, w- was only a shot behind going into the final round and was already pretty much miles clear by by the halfway stage after I think it was six birdies in his first seven holes. Um and then four birdies to finish. Um, you know, he only needed to par the last to, for the first sub-60 round in live golf history. Uh, having tied the record on day two with a 61. Um, but yeah, 58, just an, an incredible achievement. And like you say, it's unfortunate that, you know, from some outlets and, and some, you know, ways of life and social media and so on that are saying, oh, it's only live golf. It's not, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a 58. It's an incredible achievement. On a proper golf course as well. I mean, the Greenbrier, obviously, for a long time, a PGA Tour venue. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and obviously not many tour venues finish with a par three, which gives it a, a little 
added um, bit to it and, and what a put it was on the last up and over the brow and it led to some incredible celebrations arguably be arguably sorry bigger celebrations than even when he won the US Open um, the jumping around on, on the green in in the rain the conditions and everything uh, it was a great scene and, and obviously a good thing for DeChambeau as well having you know he's ditched the diet and the, and the bulking to an extent and it's his first win of course since since um, the passing of his father late last year and he was very emotional at that um and it could be a, a, a corner turn for you know one of the sport's big characters yeah that that jump at the end was almost mickelson-esque at the masters i wonder if he's gonna i wonder if he's gonna change his logo are there gonna be any <laughs> copyright issues uh, well as long as the putter's in the other hand i think he'll be all right yeah, true, true. I, mean, I, I I don't get too involved in this kind of live golf history stuff. I mean, it's in its second year. Basically, everything is historical um, in terms of what's happening within that league. But um, you, you pointed earlier on to it being the seventh 58 in men's professional golf. There is some argument. I've, I've been looking on, 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 on the internet this morning. There is some argument about whether it's six or seven. Um, but I'm counting Jason Bones in Canada. That was that was a sanctioned PGA Tour event. It count it counts for me. But um, this is a remarkably rare achievement. Um, why do you think it's so difficult to produce these kind of scores? I mean, obviously it was a past seventy. I think yesterday I want to say it was a past seventy at yes. Greenbrier, which makes it slightly more straightforward than than a seventy-two. But just trying to put into context for me, if you could, how difficult it is to produce that kind of score and just why it's so rare. Well, for a man that's happy to get one birdie every time he plays, um, to get at least twelve or you know, or ten birdies and a couple of eagles is just for me obviously sounds completely foreign and completely far-fetched and you know but for for even for for the best in the world you know you see rounds of 63 64 quite regularly on on you know the different tours dp world tour pga tour live tour and, and so on um but i don't know whether it's just whether it's a, a mental block to get past you know to get sub 60 the majority of professional golfers you know in their careers will never shoot a sub 60 round let alone shooting 58 and obviously becoming one of the most unique and lesser scored, you know, uh, rounds in history. Um, but for me, it's just every single round you see on tour when players are in a, in a good run, you know, they have three, four birdies in a row. Usually there comes a time where that run ends and there's a bogey or a, or a double because maybe there's a lack of concentration or something like that. And that did happen with, with Bryson's round at the Greenbrier. You know, I think he bogeyed the, the par three eighth, but he quickly got back and, and birdied four of his next five across the, the middle part of the round. Um, and that's something maybe you don't see that often when there is that that end to a, to a streak of birdie or, or so on. And, and I think that's what makes yesterday's round for DeChambeau so strong is that he was able to basically park that bogey on eight and just get back to the way he was playing golf and the way he was playing golf a couple of years back when he obviously won the US Open by some margin. Yeah, uh, just another point to make um, before we get onto the meat of this discussion is that he um, he shot 61 the day before. So not only did he not, not only did he shoot 58, he followed up a 61 with a 58. And it's traditionally, or the, the golf cliches, it's really hard to score low after scoring another low round. 119 shots over two <laughs> rounds. Yeah, an average of less than 60 over two rounds is just... 
unfathomable. Um, I mean, for any for anyone listening who can think of or find another two rounds as low as that, please tell us because it's some achievement. And Deshambo, like we like we say, you know, you have to take your hat off to him because it was incredible. Often, by far, the deserved winner at the Greenbrier this weekend. All right, let's get to the point now. We've padded around enough. Um, he was tied fourth in the PGA Championship. He messed around a little bit at the US Open before finishing tied 20th. He uh, has clearly dominated this event at Greenbrier a few weeks before Zach Johnson has to make his selections. Are you picking Bryson DeChambeau for the Ryder Cup? If I'm Zach Johnson, you can't not pick him. Simple as that. Um, I know there's been the talk of, you know, will live golf. Live golfers beyond, you know, in the team, and Zach Johnson seems to be saying yes. It doesn't make a difference. Um, and if you, if you're picking the strongest team you've got on paper, Bryson has to be in that team. Has to be in that team, no matter what. Well, you're going to have to explain why now. I'm not going to let you off that lightly because you you could you could use the counter argument of well, why not pick Taylor Gooch then as well? He's won three times on Live. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying Taylor Gooch won't be in the team, but I think if you're going off. Just current form. I mean, we Taylor Gooch, you know, has won three times on Live Tour twice this year, um, and again was in contention yesterday up to I think maybe the sixth or seventh, and he just faded away. But for me, Bryson, not just his golf, but he sort of also epitomizes the American spirit as well. You know, he gets right behind the team event. You know, at Whistling Straits. A couple of years ago, the crowd were right on, you know, right behind him, and that will also help going into, you know, on foreign soil for the Americans. The fans need their man like Bryson. You know, they've had Phil for years. They had DJ. You know, they've had Spieth and Thomas. Whether that happens is a different story, but Bryson is a man that they can get behind because he's unique, and that is what the American fans love as well. And they love someone that can maybe just rile the Europeans up a little bit. And that might be needed if the American team is going to win in Rome. Yeah, two and a half points out of three uh, at Whistling Straits, as you pointed out. He had a rather more interesting time, because I mean, I remember seeing some of it as well at Le Golf National in Paris. I didn't think, I don't think he, I think he lost all three of his matches. Um, and, and there was some suggestion then that the, the, the setup at Le Golf National kind of did for him um, with the way that he plays his golf. I imagine that, I can't imagine that they're going to set up uh, Marco Simone like they did Whistling Straits or like they did Hazel Tyne. So it's it's going to be a similar sort of test. So would you would you still take him then, given that he might be flailing around in some deep stuff? Yeah, I think so. I think from what I can remember from, from Paris is I think he was paired with Phil Mickelson as well. And obviously... Two men that at that point weren't hitting many fairways between them. Let's be honest. Um, you know, both games were a bit wild, and, and then the up and down. Um, and on a course like Le Golf National, you needed to hit the fairways because the rough was thick. Um, but then we saw Bryson win the U.S. Open, hitting the ball long and into thick rough and getting out of it. So it's not like he can't do it. Um, and I think if he's partnered with the right man at uh, in Rome, then I definitely think that. Um, he could get a lot of points for the US team. Imagine a Brooks-Bryson partnership after everything they've been through. They seem to be friends again now, so that could, uh, you know, two live golfers getting points on the board for the US, that would be a story for sure. 
Yeah, that newfound bromance could be tested if they're sort of three down <laughs> after five on the fir- on, on the first morning. Um, I mean, so 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 you said then that you think Bryson DeChambeau should be part of the American team. I mean, the, the big question is, do you think Zach Johnson will pick him? I mean, that's that in itself is is a much trickier question, and I think that. If Zach Johnson wants to win this Ryder Cup, he picks him. If he wants to maybe go along with the politics of the PGA Tour and the live golf and so on, he won't pick him. And I think that will be where the difference possibly lies in that decision. So you're arguing that Kepka's obviously automatic because he's won the major. That's how he gets in. It's a bit weird then, though, to then play politics when you're already when you've already got a live golfer who's guaranteed to be in the field. Yeah, but I mean, well, we've seen all the different, you know, what all the different people have said and, you know, what John Rahm said about the merger. Well, Rory, obviously, has not spoken much about it. Um, Zach Johnson, obviously, saying that he's he's fine with, not well, maybe not fine, but he can see live golfers playing in the Ryder Cup. I mean, for me, if he doesn't pick him, I think it's a mistake because of just the form that he's in. And I think you could argue the same possibly for for Taylor Gooch as well. Well, we'll be interesting to see uh, what Zach Johnson does. I mean, not just because of Taylor Gooch, as you point out, and Bryson DeChambeau, but for another player who, well, I mean, his chip in at the last very nearly went in the hole. It only just missed, didn't it? But Justin Thomas is probably the biggest name um, to miss out on the FedEx Tour. FedEx Cup, sorry, playoffs. Um, he didn't quite get into the top seventy. Finished tied tenth, I think, at the Wyndham Championship. So I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you the same question. Very different slates of form, obviously. But do you take Justin Thomas as a captain's pick to the Ryder Cup? This might surprise a lot of people, but yes. And I would pick him purely because you play him alongside Jordan Spieth. And it's a different ball game for JT, I think. Um, we've seen that partnership work. I think it worked brilliantly in Paris. I think they got three points out of the four they played together. Um, it, they played together again at Whistling Straits. Um, the only argument with that would be is, I think a few years back, Patrick Reed and Jordan Spieth also had a good partnership. And Patrick Reed could be another that maybe gets a, a captain's pick if we're going down the live golf route. So, um, But for me, I think you've got to pick JT just for that partnership. Um, you know, I know he's not playing brilliantly, but he did play a lot better this week than he has done uh, over the last few. And if that chip had sunk, I think it hit the flag flagstick actually on the seventy second. If that had gone in, he'd have been tied seventh and would have had enough points to make the FedEx Cup playoffs. Um, but is three weeks off going to be a bad thing for JT? I don't necessarily think so. I think it's going to give him time to go away, work on his game, um, and I think you still pick him just from what he, you know he can do alongside Spieth as a pairing in the Ryder Cup. There's this argument, isn't there, that you should always pick Ryder Cup players in form, that it's form that's the most important thing going into that tournament. But, I mean, Europe don't necessarily go down that path. Sergio Garcia, if I remember rightly, was in awful form coming into Paris in 2018 and delivered handsomely for the European team that week. Yeah, and then obviously then partnered John Rahm at um, Whistling Straits and they were a good partnership, you know, the Spanish partnership again um you know there's been Ryder Cups where Poulter and Stenson and Rose haven't been in the best form but then you put them together 
you know, Rose and Stenson as a, as a foursomes partnership are almost, you know, unbeaten. Um, so I think, yeah, there's, there's the argument for playing, you know, for, for picking people on form, but you also get to look at, you know, the Ryder Cup is a completely different format, completely different game to week to week on the PGA Tour, DP World Tour, Live Golf Tour. Um, and I think you've got to take that into account as well. So, I mean, clearly um, you've decided that you're picking JT and you've decided that you're picking Bryson DeChambeau, neither of whom uh, are currently in the top 12 of the US standings. So you, you've, you've laid your marker down here, but I want to know who's going to miss out. Who's he not going to pick? Colin Morikawa is 11th currently in the standings. Ricky Fowler is 12th. Keegan Bradley is 10th. Jordan Spieth is ninth. I think they're going on a sort of six and six, isn't there? So at the moment, Scheffler, Wyndham Clark, Brian Harmon, Brooks Kepka, Xander Shoffley and Patrick Cantley are the six for the US side. And Scheffler and Wyndham Clark can't be, they can't be stopped. They have qualified. Um, Harmon's definitely going to play, you would have thought. Kepka's definitely going to play, you could have thought. But there's some big guns there that you're going you're gonna to sort of keep out to fit DeChambeau in that side. Who are you dropping? Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at the last, you know, the last uh, American team, Wyndham Clark wasn't in it, Brian Harmon wasn't in it. Um, so there's obviously a couple of big names that are going to miss out. Looking at the point standings, not necessarily, you know, Chauflay and Cantley, who are currently five and six, you know, with the points on offer over the next three weeks in the playoffs, um, they might not be in the top six come the time that Zach Johnson or that the cutoff time is for the American team. Um, I think the top four are set, like you say, Scheffler and Clark already in. I mean, Scheffler's just the season he's had, no surprise. Wyndham Clark, obviously major champion. Brian Harmon, major champion. Brooks Kepka, major champion. Um, that major champion sounds a lot, doesn't it, when the Europe's only got John Rahm, which is a bit of a worry um, from the European standpoint. But I think, I mean, Chauffelet's not been in the best of form. Cantley, well, we know all the talk about slow play and so on, but when he when he's on, he's very good. Max Homer again, very good. It's a very tricky decision. I know it's a very tricky decision. Um, if we look at it, so if we're saying Chauffelet and Cantley stay as they are in the top six, my other four that I would pick would be Max Homer, Jordan Spieth to partner up with JT, Ricky Fowler. Oh, one more. Oh, it's tough. I would go on form. I'd go Cameron Young, and I would drop Morikawa. Wow, big call. Yeah, big call. Dropping mm. a two-time major champion. We'll have to see if Zach's listening in. Zach, if you're that's, listening in, that's going to say. But again, he's not. He's not won. You know, in two years. So that's. I've not got much to argue with, really, but that's basically the point I'm going with. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was going to say, I mean, I, I mean, you're dropping him for a guy who's barely made a cut in the last three months. So big call. But, you know, big team, big team decisions, big calls. We will see how this plays out um, for Zach Johnson when the US team is finally confirmed, probably at the end of the FedEx Cup playoffs, I would imagine. Um, it was... A weekend of carnage for big names with the um, at the at the Wyndham Championship. I mean, not just JT missing out, but Adam Scott and a host of other big players as well. I mean, you've you've written about it. They're on our website at the moment. Just just tell me who has failed to make the top seventy. 
I mean, several major champions. You mentioned Adam Scott. He finished 72nd, just behind JT. They were the two closest to miss out. But Shane Lowry, you know, open champion, missed out. Danny Willett didn't make the cut, so he was out on Friday night. Gary Woodland was another. Um, but Billy Horschel, of course, I think was one of the biggest stories this week. Um, he had a chance to, to make it in. I think he came in sort of in the 120 region, um, and he needed solo second. Um, tied for the lead, uh, you know, going into the final round, but just couldn't put it together on, on Sunday in, in, in those conditions. Um, eventually finished fourth um, and, and fell off. But, you know, an emo- it's a bit, bit an emotional time for, for Billy. And, you know, he's been a, a big part of both tours over the last few years, you know, having won the, the BMW PGA uh, on the DP World Tour a few years ago. Um, I was there for that and it was an emotional win for him. I remember him sobbing a little bit on the on, on the 18th green. Um, but yeah, there's a host of big names who've missed out, many major champions, um, you know, when you look at the likes of... And then Lucas Glover obviously getting in, jumping up almost 100 places. Um, so yeah, many big names, but those definitely uh, will also now have to qualify as well, of course, for next year in the, through the fall series for the signature stroke designated, stroke elevated events, whatever they're being called, because um, only the top 50 get into them guaranteed. Yeah, that that'll be very interesting. I wonder. I wonder if there'll be some exceptions made there um, for some of those players that missed out. We'll wait and see. Um, let's move on. Well, no, let, let's let's focus on Billy just for a second because I think that um, yes, he hasn't made the top seventy, but events of the last couple of days were probably a bigger win for him, given some of the things that have happened to him this year on the golf course. You, you wrote about this and another piece that's on our website. I mean, just just explain. For those who don't know, I'm sure everyone is, but for those who don't know, just explain Billy Horschel's last few months and the people who have who he has turned to and have come to aid him in his hour of need. Yeah, so I mean, of course, I think it was a couple of months ago now, it was the Memorial Tournament. Um, he Billy shot 84 in the opening round, 12 over par. Um, and obviously, usually social media, you know, you don't see you know, clips appear of, of interviews of, of players who shot an 84. Um, but Billy, you know, true to the man he is and the class of the man, that he, he came out and, you know, he just almost broke down um, in, in to his interview um, following that round. And it was it was an interview that was sort of seen around the world um, of, of what golf and professional golf can, can, can do, you know, to, to a man who, who said he felt he was close. He felt he was close to, to, to getting, you know, getting everything back on track. Um, and one man that, um, you know, was the story that came out this week is, is he was spoken to on, on Saturday after, you know, time for the lead after 54 holes and um, was former West Ham captain uh, and now sporting director, Mark Noble, um, the, you know, former Premier League star. The pair have struck up a friendship, you know, o- over the years and, Noble plays alongside Horschel. I think he's played alongside him at the BMW PGA in the Pro-Am. He's played alongside him as a pair in the in the Alfred Dunnell Lynx Championship in, in the Pro-Am there that we always see, you know, Rory play with his dad and, and, and JT play with his dad and so on. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and after that emotional press conference um, at the Memorial, Mark Noble was was one of the men to, to send him a message um, and you know Billy was very grateful for that. And and in on Saturday he said that you know we are very much wired similar in the way he played professionally and the way I play professionally. And 
Noble said there's a lot of times that he would come home and would cry because they were playing so badly and you know he'd be doing everything to try and get West Ham to play at a higher level. Um, and Horschel admitted that him that Noble sharing that with him um, you know truly made him aware of how good a player he actually could be and how good a player he was. Um, and obviously he was on the brink of that turnaround this week and wasn't able to to quite get it done. But it, it just shows what professional golf can can do to players and, and the highs and lows uh, of this sport. Um, but again, great to see Billy back this week. And although he's not going to make the, the FedEx Cup playoffs, um, he's definitely still got a lot left to give on the on the PGA Tour. And on the DP World Tour as well, because I'm assuming that we're going to see him at Wentworth, where he has won before. So we'll see that. Um, we'll see the Hammers logo and those colours on his bag, and we'll we'll look forward to doing that. Let's let's move on to um, women's golf. Really big week on the women's tour um, this week uh, with the AIG Women's Open. We'll we'll preview that in a minute because obviously you're going to be going down for us. But um, Celine Boutier, she just can't stop winning at the moment after obviously claiming the Evian Championship in her home major. She's then gone on to Scotland, the usual prep event for the uh, for the Women's Open, and she's won there as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just talk about purple patches in golf. Um, I think she's 29 under par um, across those eight rounds of golf. Um, just absolutely incredible. Um, you know, after becoming the first French woman to win the Evian Championship on home soil, um, you know, last Sunday, just eight days ago, um, she would have, I think everyone would have forgiven her um, if she'd have pulled out of the Scottish Open, taken a week off and then tried to go back to back in the majors. But for her to to go to Dundonald, um, which is a very tough golf course, and to win again, um, just shows her class. And obviously, she will certainly be one that Europe will also be hoping for in the Solheim Cup having spoken about the Ryder Cup earlier as well. You're not going to have a bet on her this week, though, are you? I mean, three weeks in a row, could you rule it out? I mean, you can't You can't not. I mean, you, as, as much as, you know, players probably, you know, wear out and, and tire out, um, she's just in, she's on cloud nine, let alone cloud nine, she's on cloud 10, 11, 12 at the moment. Um an incredible first major, an incredible win in Scotland. I would say don't bet against her this week. Well, she would do something incredible, Tiger Woods-esque, if she won three weeks in a row. She's the current fifth favourite um, for the AIG Women's Open. Nelly Corder uh, at the top of the pile, as you would expect. The world number two won the Aramco Team Series event in London recently. Real Zhang. Um, the amateurs had, or the former amateurs, had such a big start to her professional career. She's third favourite. I think she's only playing about a fourth or fifth major in total, isn't she? Um, Celine Boutier tied with Minji Lee, Lynn Grant at twenty to one, Leona Maguire, obviously at twenty to one as well. Let's have a let's have a more of a detailed chat about uh, the AIG. Obviously at Walton Heath this week, absolutely classic track, home of the. 1981 Ryder Cup. I'm going to delve back into the annals of time here. Home of the 1981 Ryder Cup, where one of the greatest American teams of all time handed Europe a complete shoeing. Um, it does continue 
a very welcome trend of women's majors going to really, really, really good golf courses. We've obviously had Pebble Beach this year. We've had Baltrasol um, this year as well um, for the LPGA, for the American majors. You know, going back, um, Muirfield last year, Carnoustie, I think it's St Andrews next year as well. I mean, there's a lot to look forward to this week, but the course is, is going to play a huge part as well. Yeah, no doubt. Um, no doubt. It's like you say, it's, it's a typical open championship course as well for, for, for the women's open. And it's, it's a tough test. Um, I've played, I've played the old course there before. And I mean, for an amateur golfer and, and an average golfer like myself, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah, um, we, we need to underline the average here. It, <laughs> it, we saw very many lines. Yes, that's in red sharpie for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible golf course, an incredible track, um, and one that will surely provide a fitting end to um, you know the women's major championship season. What do you think are the big storylines then coming into this week? Outside of obviously Celine Boutier um, mashing up everything on her way to successive victories. I mean, clearly there'll be a lot of there's a lot of interest in Nelly Corder and whether she can get back on um, on the major bandwagon. I mean, she's the former world number one. I think she's the world number two currently, but could probably be the world number one again. She uh, had a very high profile driver change. Um, during uh, the Evian Championship, where she switched back to some old equipment, sort of halfway through, and then shot sixty-four in the third round. So it'd be interesting to see whether whether she sticks with that. I mean, what what, what are you looking? You're going obviously for us this week. Um, what are you looking forward to at uh, Walton Heath, and what do you think the big storylines are? Well, I mean, if you look at last year's. Excuse me. You look at last year's um, Women's Open. Um, Ashley Buhai came out of absolutely nowhere, really, to to win um, her first major title. She hadn't won in four years um, on the Ladies European Tour prior to that. Um, so I'd be interesting. It's going to be interesting, I think, to see how how she does um, because she she's she's not done great in the majors this year. No more than. Um, a tied 18th at the Chevron Championship. She was tied 20th at, at the Evian as well. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see to see what she does. Um, as I say, defending champion won last year. You know, in an incredible playoff with um, Inji Chun uh, winning on the fourth extra hole. Um, but yeah, I think she's going to be one of the stories this week. She's I don't, despite being defending champion, I don't think many people are talking about her. Um, you know, when you've got the likes of Nelly Corder, Celine Boutier, obviously Charlie Hull, Georgia Hall, both on home soil. You know, they're going to be the the people and the, the players that the people are talking about. So I think it could be another good week for, for Ashley Buhai to go under the radar somewhat, despite being the defending champion. Now, I obviously put you to the task of doing our tipping preview this week for the AIG Women's Open. Have you, have you come up with any come up with any big players for us well i mean it might surprise you that um celine boutier will be one of those um i just think she's i i completely agree with there is the, the you know the opportunity or the option that she will you know drop off after two straight two straight wins um but 
I mean, the form she's in, I just think you can't, I don't think you can bet against her, really. Come on, um, man. this is not the kind of insight that we're looking for. Tipster picks player that's won the last two weeks. Come on, get, 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 let's, let's get into some delving. Where's, where's the real value? All right. Well, do you know what? I think, I think, um, uh, somewhere, you know, in the 20 to 25 region, I think Leona Maguire is a very good bet. Obviously, Irish has recently won on the LPGA. You, you spoke to her recently as well. Um, I think she could be a very good bet this week. Um, you've got the likes of Charlie Hull, Georgia Hull. They're both pushing towards 50-1, to 1, playing on home soil. Georgia Hull, of course, a previous winner of this event as well. She knows how to win the, the AIG Women's Open. Alison Corpus, major winner this year, also up at 50s. Um, but I, I, I'm going to go, my, my sort of outside bet is going to be one, is going to be uh, a former world number one former major champion, somewhere in the 60-60-6 to 1 region, Lydia Ko is going to be my outside bet this week. Not in the greatest of form, but she knows how to win on the big stage. That's going to be my outside pick for the week. Well, you've heard it here first. Um, and we look forward to all of your dispatches from Walton Heath this week as you go down for the IG Women's Open. Uh, we're we're going to finish off today with the with the FedEx St. Jude, which is obviously the first event of the FedEx Cup playoffs. I mean, we've talked about all the people that have missed out, but there's still um, an array of talent, as you would expect, going for some big money over the next couple of weeks. Um, what do you make of the the, the move to 70 do you like it? I don't, I don't to be honest. Um, I, I preferred it when it was a full field that went to 75, that then went to, that then sort of got whittled down as, as, it, as, as it were. I, I think there's just too much pressure now on trying to, on trying to make that 70. And then it sort of feels to me, if I'm being honest, that it's just an attempt to bolster the fall series by making 50 odd players who would have been quite happy with their lot for the rest of the season. Get get their clubs out in September and October. Yeah, no, I, I do see where you're coming from. Obviously, the the fall series um, this year is, is a brand new thing. You know, looking towards the um, next year's, as we said, signature events um, and and so on. Um, but I, I was actually taking a look at this last week, and and it surprised me that it had already been five years since we actually just made the change from four events in the playoffs to three events. Um, I thought it was much more recent than that. Um, but yeah, back in 2018 was the last time when they had four events and it was 125 players in the Northern Trust, 100 for the Dell, 70 at the BMW, and then it was whittled down to 30 for the Tour Championship. Um, since then, it's been, as we said, 125, 70 and 30 um, ever since, um, pretty much. But yeah, this year, I, I do agree with you. I prefer having the full field, um, you know, full field in a cut as 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 it used to be. But I do understand why they've gone to, to 70. Um, so, you know, you've just got 70, play all four days, you know, get your points, make the top 50. Same again at the BMW, get your points, make your top 30. And then obviously they've got the staggered start of the Tour Championship. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you that it, it, I always prefer a bigger field, especially to start the playoffs. And maybe the fourth event, obviously, is, is how it used to be as well. Yeah, no cut playoff event. Why don't they just play it over fifty four holes and be done with it? Um, but anyway, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, who are you? Who, who do you like then this week at the FedEx and you? Because again, I've sort of put you on the spot um, with our with our tipping column. So, I mean, who are you looking at to uh, drive forward into the next round? Well, I mean, I was looking at this again earlier, and, and surprisingly, only two of the last um, seven winners still play on the PGA Tour. Um, from 2016 to 2020, all five winners are now actually live golf players. Twice for Patrick Reed, twice for DJ, and one for Bryson. Tony Finau and Will Zalatoris have been the two that have um, won recently. Of course, Zalatoris been injured, of course, a lot this year, so he's not there. Tony Finau, so then, is the only winner since 2016 to actually be in the field for the FedEx St. Jude this week. Um so, it, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I mean, you've got, obviously, the likes of Scotty, Rory, John Rahm, you know, and all the big names. But I'm going to go for an outside bet. Um, finished runner-up at this event last year. Finished joint runner-up at the Open Championship. And is very much a man in Luke Donald's eyes. I'm going for Austria's Sepp Straker, who is currently... Just north of fifty to one. Um, I say good form on this track, good form currently as well. Um, so he definitely could be, especially worth an each way punt this week um, at the FedEx St Jude. I've asked you for everyone else. So I'm going to finish off by asking you this: Are you going to pick Sepp Stracker for the Ryder Cup? Does he have to win yeah. the FedEx St Jude first? Well, you pick him, would you? Yeah, I think again. I think the. I mean, the problem with you know we we mentioned about the American team and who you're going to drop. That is the question that differs with the European team because the question for the American team is who you're going to drop because they've got so many big names. The question for the European team is who are you going to pick? Because if you think since the last Ryder Cup, you've lost because the European team, by the look of it, will not be picking live golfers. You've lost Westwood, Stenson, Poulter, Garcia. So there's a lot of space that's you know got to be plugged let's call it and obviously McElroy, Rama and so on would be in but for me Sepp Stracker definitely makes this team the form he's in um you know he's just just outside the the top um the top three being picked on the um world points list which is currently Hovland, Hatton and Fleetwood um I can't see how you wouldn't pick him for a Ryder Cup um debut along with the likes of possibly Adrian Moronk as well, who's been playing very well recently. Um, but yeah, for me, Sepp Stracker is, is not a shoo-in, but I would imagine Luke Donald will be picking him. Well, I mean, two things to note on some of those players that you talked about. All of those, with the exception of Garcia, and even Garcia, obviously, over the last two years, but you might pick him because he was Europe's record. In fact, the Ryder Cup, I think, record-leading point scorer. Um, I mean, all of the rest of those players are well past their peak and probably yeah. wouldn't play it anyway. So we're clearly in a, in a in a transition period. I'm not as down on Europe as I think a, a lot of other pundits seem to be. And I mean, when I look at their sort of top six, Ram, McElroy, Hovland, Hatton, Fleetwood, Fitzpatrick, all of which are going to play... It's pretty solid that. Then you then you add then you add maybe Shane Lowry into that. It's probably likely that someone like uh, Bob McIntyre, Bob McIntyre is going to qualify through the European points list. But Yannick Paul's been in been in, been in decent form. I'm not I'm not as down. I, I think 
the USA have still got a lot of there's a, there's going to be a lot of new blood in that team and historically they've performed poorly in Europe because of the way that Europe sets up their tracks this they're very well placed to win of course they are the USA but you know they haven't they haven't won in Europe since 1993 so um I, I still think there are some options I'm 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 confident I'm still confident um, yeah I, I'm not I, I foresee more of a sort of four or five point win for the the Americans just purely on the the strength in depth that they've got you know they could leave four players out on on Friday morning and there'd be four players that could arguably beat Europe's best four um on their day obviously um I just think there's there's not enough big names in the European team that are gonna go to match the American team um this year I think that might change in a couple of years time when you look at the likes of maybe Moronk and Yannick Paul and and Sepp Straka if they continue on this upward trend that they're on. But I think it's definitely going to be tough for Team Europe in Rome. Well, the great thing about predictions is they're easily proved or disproved and we've only got a few weeks to, weeks to find out. Um, you've got a very busy week, Matt, so we're going to leave you to it. Enjoy yourself <laughs> at the AIG Women's Open. Let's hope we have a fantastic week overall. And yeah. we will see you all next week when Chiv will be back in the chair. I'm sure you'll all be delighted to know um, for another edition of the Slam podcast. Thanks for joining us.